podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is a special episode of Red Inca. It touches on some deep stuff about alcoholism, depression and suicide. So be warned going in. But I think it's an incredible story and one that will make you feel a little bit better about the world in the end. Mark Cole's looking for cricket opportunities. I don't really know what to say here. There are deeply personal reasons that Mark's story resonates with me. I know what it's like to be a lost, sort of broken teen, frustrated in my 20s, and I've had my own issues with suicide in the past. I also know what it's like to leave your family on a whim because something inside you just tells you you have to. It isn't right, and you feel that this is maybe a chance to get something better because this is a chance to fix it and make yourself a little bit whole. So this chat covers the life of Mark Coles, growing up as a child of cricket, becoming a coach, struggling with life, and then one day on a whim, contacting Mickey Arthur and offering to coach the Pakistan women's team. It's dark at times, but it's also beautiful and uplifting and like most great things, it ends in ice cream. Let's start with yourself as a child. Mm -hmm. Your father was obviously a cricketer. And you would stay up late at night, basically waiting for him to come home and talk you through what had gone through on his day's play playing for Wellington. Yeah, I, I used to remember that. I would have been probably four or five at best. And I um, used to wait up for dad and, you know, get home at 7, 7.30 at night. And then I'd hear him come in and just come and say goodnight. And then I'd wake up or I'd be awake just waiting up for him and ask him how he bowled and and he said, oh, I bowled okay. And how many wickets did you get? You know, he'd say three. And I said, were they top order players or were they 19 and 11? He'd say, no, 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 I got the opener out early. And so those were my first real memories of um, my initial cricket love, I guess. And then, you know, I used to ask him how many runs he got. And I knew that he wouldn't get many because he was generally batting 10 or 11 for Wellington. So he was either not out three or out for not many. I had a look. His batting average was six in first-class cricket. So yeah, yeah. So three was quite a high score for him then. <laughs> in those days, New Zealand domestic cricket was very, very amateur. It's only just become professional maybe in the last few years. It must have been tough for him to balance being a cricketer for Wellington and, and having a normal life. Yeah, it was. And I do remember this as well, that mum would take dad to the airport on Christmas Day. So we'd open up the Christmas presents early under the tree. And as you are young, you know, I always wanted something to do with cricket. and then. By sort of 12 o'clock, we were taking Dad to the airport or we were taking him to the Basin Reserve to play Christmas Day. So they'd play in the afternoon, Christmas Day, and then Boxing Day, and then the 27th, and that would be pretty much the three to game because, of course, they all worked, as you quite rightly mentioned, and it was back to work on the 28th or the 29th, whenever it may have been. So Christmas Days, for me, it was really exciting. For Mum, it was pretty boring because she wasn't really a great fan of cricket mainly because Christmas days weren't Christmas days. So, and whites were very green. They got <laughs> dirty and um, she had to clean them all. So that was my recollection of Christmas days and the early part of my life. You are a proper child of cricket then, aren't you? I am, unfortunately. I, I think sometimes mum wished I was a girl, definitely. <laughs> um, then when dad wasn't playing for Wellington, he'd be playing for the local club, Coolburnie in Wellington, which is out by the airport. And, I would play my cricket early in the morning and then mum would drive me out there with my packed lunch and I'd sit there and just watch dad and 
watch them bowl and then be around them at the end. And we had Don Neely, who was a great statistician in New Zealand, and Mark Ellis, the former All Black, his dad played in the club team. So, and then the Graham Bilby and Richard Collinges and Bruce Eggers also played in the team. So I was around some pretty cool people. And it was a great little team that they had. And back then, I think they used to stay and have a couple of beers. And I just used to sit and listen. And whether Dad did well or not, I was around some pretty cool people. You played yourself and you were a bowler as well, like your old man? Yeah, I tried to. You know, I mean, in, in my early days, I guess when I was 10, 11, 12, people thought I had the ability to play for the Wellington team or New Zealand as we called it then. We didn't call it the Black Caps. And my first thing was that people used to say, oh, you're Michael Coles' son, aren't you? You're a senior bowler. I saw you in the game when we were warming up. Well, you're going to follow in your dad's footsteps. So I always found that pretty difficult. But then I guess just like every young kid, you used to bowl out the backyard and, and the yards sort of sloped and I started to get back injuries. And um, I used to pretend I was playing in a test match or, you know, four wickets and I needed one to get. And Derek Underwood was batting and I'd bowl him out and I was playing for New Zealand and whatever else it might be. As, as kids do these days too, I'm absolutely sure of it. But yeah, then I started to get back injuries in my early teenage years. So when I was at Wellington College, I dad sort of turned me into a spinner to try and alleviate the back problems, which I really disliked because I just had that nature of wanting to be a fast bowler. So bowling spin was just a pain and then tried to get my batting going. But that didn't work out very well either. I just used to get frustrated with batting. Sorry about that, but not a batter. <laughs> <laughs> so at that stage, you're, you're in your late teen years. Is that when you turn to the bottle as well? Is that when you start to drink? Uh, yeah, well, that was. I remember making the first 11. And um, back then I was in the, the third form, which is what, year nine now. And I was mixing with some pretty big boys who were in year 13 or whatever it is back then. And I remember going to the captain's house. We used to play against Wonganui Collegiate, which was, which was the traditional game. And I didn't really know what alcohol was, but I know that they poured some alcohol down my throat and I wasn't feeling too good on the way home. And then I remember <laughs> trying to run down the hall of mum and dad's house in, in Wellington and they'd just put down cream-coloured carpet and mum was as proud as punch of her carpet. And I, I didn't get to the end. It would have been probably the length of the pitch, actually, so I would have been run out anyway. But um, I, I just didn't get to the end and, and of course, there it was. What I drank came out pretty quick, and uh, was that my first taste of it? Yeah, that was that was my first taste of it, I suppose. And were you at this point with your back injury, and you're now thinking to yourself, you may not go on to be a uh, a cricketer? Mm. Is there an overlap there? Is that a natural thing that your your dream from a young age was disappearing, and then alcohol came along, or are they just unrelated? Probably a little bit unrelated, but I, I could see my dream fading away a little bit. I enjoyed school, but I wasn't really very really good at it. And it wasn't my thing. I just wanted to play cricket and sport and go to school and hang out with your mates and stuff. So I think as time developed, I remember a couple of other incidents with a couple of mates and one guy, we'd got into mum and dad's liquor cupboard and invited a couple of mates around at the end of exams. And I can remember him yet to be pulled off in an ambulance he collapsed in, in the cable car going down into Wellington so oh. that was probably age 15 16 so I'd taken a liking to it pretty quick mm. and I guess it just made me feel better about things and all the anxieties that you have or, or issues that you might have as a teenager and I remember mum fielding the call from his parents you know he ended up in, in hospital to pump his stomach out so 
you know, I wasn't very popular at home then either. So you, you leave school, you didn't go to university, you went and worked normal jobs? No, I went and worked for a bank and then I, I did a storeman's job, which was really cool because my boss, lovely, lovely man, he looked after me and, and became sort of almost another father figure for me and, and he liked cricket. So as I started to move into club cricket and then played a couple of Wellington 11 games, selection games, he used to come and watch. So he used to be able to give me time off and he was a great fan of mine, you know, and I always enjoyed him coming down and watching cricket. He, he loved his cricket. So that worked out really well for me. And then um, I studied a bit of radio school and did a bit of sales and radio announcing and things as I went along. So I then ended up working in Cadbury Chocolate. And my boss happened to be Willie Watson, who obviously played cricket for New Zealand. So that was a good synergy as well. That worked really well for me. And um, cricket had started to fade away, but some coaching had started to come into play. How did you sort of move into coaching then? I remember basically giving the game away at 26 or 27. I'd sort of played some club cricket and we'd done reasonably well and uh, in Wellington won a few trophies. And then I remember just thinking, well, that's it. I can't do much more. My cricket's over. And I thought, well, I can umpire, which I knew that I'd be really bad at because the moment that a bowler shouted for LBW, I'd probably give it out. So I knew that I probably wouldn't score very high there with the batters. So that wasn't really me and I wanted to be involved. So I thought, well, coaching, I'd done some level ones and level twos and thought, well, I'm going to give back to the game. So I went to Irv McSweeney, who used to be a former player, played for New Zealand a few one-dayers in the, in the 80s and said, look, I'm really keen on, on some coaching. And I remember him ringing me saying, uh, I've got the job for you. I've got, a, I've got a coaching job. I said, oh, great. It's fantastic. I was thinking that he'd say under 17 boys or something. You know, He said, you can coach the women's team. I said, um, really? Do they play? <laughs> and whilst that seems really horrible, and I do apologise, back then, women's cricket wasn't what it was now. I just remember the first practice thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. How do I do this? So I sort of muddled my way through, and we, we were reasonably successful, and we had a good bunch of girls. And one of the things that changed my life was a young lady called Frances King, who played cricket for New Zealand and died of meningitis. And she, she was a great person and she was a very hard worker. And we had a coach relationship there that was very strong because she wanted to be the best that she could be. And I can remember working with her and then almost within 24 hours she was gone. And um, I just didn't, I didn't really cope with that at all, to be honest. And that was probably I got out of coaching cricket for a couple of years, 18 months and that was, I guess, this, uh, another little spike in the drinking. And um, uh, we've named our daughter after her middle name's Frances. So she was just a person that was meant to be on earth to to make people happy. And, you know, she had dreadlocks and she was just out there, but she was such a fantastic person. And we just sort of hit it off. And her determination to play for New Zealand, as I said, to be the best that she could be just resonated with me, I guess. And so the drinking and the coaching – does the drinking get worse when you're not coaching or does it not matter? Is, are they just going hand in hand? Uh, I think they were going hand in hand and that wasn't making me a very good coach. Uh, you know, when I've sort of, you know, learned a lot about when you're coaching, I always thought that winning was really important because everybody loves to win. So it became the most important thing for me. And then when we didn't win or the teams didn't win, then I thought, well, that's not very good. You're to blame. Might as well have a drink. You know? And then things just got out of hand and as I got out of the, when I did spend some time away from the game or as you said in the winter months then those would be the times that I would be 
heavily drinking. And often for a couple of days, I can remember one of the worst things and one of the best things that I did was I went and managed a premier rugby team in the winter. That sort of came with its issues because you, you learned with these court sessions that they have. In fact, I ended up managing my namesake, Dane Coles, who, who was obviously a very good player. He ended up being an all black. In his early days, he played for Ponicky in Wellington. So I remember making a, a, a club final. And I, I think I drank for three days, you know, and I knew that I was in a really bad space, but then I, I didn't really understand how I could get out of it. And so, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that just didn't really make me a great cricket coach because I guess you were probably hung over quite a lot of the time and you were coaching young men. And I don't think I was hung over when I was coaching. There probably was the odd occasion. I tried not to be, but I guess after on Saturday night when the game was over, I win or lose, it was time to celebrate. And what age are you around this period? Old enough to know better, Jared, probably. But you're always learning, aren't you? This was 2007, 8, 9, so... I coached, obviously got back into coaching and mainly coached boys club teams and stuff. And I actually, it was my first time in 2008, 2009, I'm sorry, we came over to the Sunshine Coast and I coached the Scorcher where I'm based at the moment, the Scorcher side. And that was a pretty lonely time. My wife was back at home with Madison. She was pregnant. And so I was over here in a part-time role trying to break the Australian market and get into it and eventually got the job in Vanuatu. And whilst that was really good for me, it was really bad for me because there was no drink driving laws in Vanuatu. That sometimes became a little bit awkward as well for me. And you're on an island and it's a beautiful island. And, and you know, I gave everything over there. We progressed up the table a little bit. and um, But there were times where I, I just probably overdrank and things as well. So, And we had a one-year-old little girl. So... I pulled it back a bit, but there were the occasions where it was a bit heavier than it should have. A lot of my friends are coaches. I've worked with a few cricket teams as an analyst and GM, those sorts of jobs. Um, It's a very tough career to break into, and it's a very uncertain one. It doesn't sound like it was necessarily a perfect match for your psyche at that time. No, probably not. It's a very lonely life because you end up going back to a hotel room and um, you have to think about what's happened and how or what you could have done better and you think about a whole lot of things and often you're up late and there's the temptation there so what I have found is that drinkers always find friends and friends and drinkers I guess you can always find a friend when you're a drinker there was always someone that would want to go out for a drink you know and and chat and whatever so that was something that I I guess was pretty good at finding a friend but in saying that there were some really good times the Vanuatu boys fantastic kids and I was in Melbourne in January and I I was just shopping with Mel and we were in the middle of Country Road and these two young guys yelled out, Mark, Mark, and I turned around, Andrew Mansale and Patrick Matuatave from Vanuatu had followed me, had seen me and thought, that's Mark, that's Mark, and here we were in the middle of Melbourne and these guys had tracked me down and just the reunion, we hadn't seen each other for about eight or nine years we'd worked out, but they were just so happy to see me and, of course, People in Country Road were wondering what the heck was going on. (laughs) But those relationships that you can still have, and I guess that's why we coach, because we make these relationships. So fast forward a little bit then to 2017. Why are you in such a a low state by that point? Is it the drinking or is it everything? I was really frustrated in my job. I was working for Waikato Valley and I was getting a bit of heat from some people that were just noise, really, and I just... At that particular stage, I wasn't 
coping very well with the noise and I knew that they were out to get me, even though the board that I was working for had my back. But there were some people that were making things uncomfortable. I'd worked for the Northern Spirit women's team and a couple of parents were making things pretty uncomfortable for me and I just wasn't enjoying it, wasn't coping very well. So the drinking again started to figure out the problem, I guess, or to try and take the problem away. And then there was a little bit, of, I remember the the incident really clearly, unfortunately. Someone had said something at a ground and I'd, at that stage I was sort of in charge of things and it was a club final and a couple of guys had made some comments about we shouldn't have called it off and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you influenced the umpires, which I didn't do. They'd pulled it off themselves. And then I just thought, I've had enough of this. So I went along and the, the guys had finished the season and I it was about 11, 12 o'clock. And uh, by the time I got home, it was 5, 5.30. And I, I just had enough of life, to be honest, I, as hard as that may seem. So I'd had quite a lot to drink in a very short space of time. And I'd worked it all out without going into gory details. I'd worked it all out that Mel would ring the police and the police would know that there was a young person in the house. And, yeah, so in my mind I'd said goodbye to Maddie. I'd said goodbye to Maddie anyway, my daughter, and then um, went about trying to do what I was trying to do. And thankfully Mel said, well, you're going to have to kill me, and I couldn't do that. So... <laughs> I went into the spare room and just slammed the door and I don't think I slept at all, but Mel got up, went to work and Maddie went to school. I remember they left really early because I was thinking, you know, they're going to move out and whatever, but they left pretty early and I got up. And I remember getting in the car, I, was, I don't know, I was probably over the limit or would have been close if someone had pulled me over, but just driving through Hamilton and not even really knowing where I was going and then just getting to the, a place called the Warehouse, which is like a... Glorified Tesco's, I suppose, and just sitting on a bench chair like an old man. Sometimes when you, your partner or is shopping, you get tired and you just sit on these bench chairs that they have. And I, I remember sitting there and um, just thinking, you're going to lose the whole lot. You know, you're going to lose everything you've worked for, everything you've got. You're just going to be wiped out of you, mate. It's over. And so you need to change things around and change them real quick. And so I... I knew that I, I obviously went home and Mel gave me an ultimatum, either this stops or I'm out, I'm taking Maddie. And so I needed to get help. And I was really thankful I went to a counsellor who was an alcoholic, so he understood me um, and he was fantastic. He said, this is, this is how it operates, it's like a circle, you know, and um, he helped me through a lot of stuff and you know, helped me identify a lot of stuff. And then in, sort of the Women's World Cup came along and, just watching New Zealand absolutely thrash these poor little Pakistan girls. All, uh, I mean, I think Sophie just went berserk and they'd lost within 15 overs, I think, or whatever it was. New Zealand were chasing 140 and she blasted it. And I just thought, hang on, I know Mickey Arthur. He's coaching Pakistan. I'm going to try and track him down because these girls need help. So I did. I managed to track down Mickey and then things sort of progressed from there a little bit, I guess. I remember the first time I saw the Pakistan women team play, they had a little left-arm seam bowler who swung the ball as much as I've ever seen anyone swing the ball, but she was bowling around the wicket, and I just thought, clearly no one has worked with her ever. If she bowls over the wicket, no one will ever be able to hit her. It was clear that there was talent there. That World Cup, I was at the game where they should have beaten South Africa, yes. who went on to almost make the final. So there was talent there. Yeah. But 
you cold called Mickey Arthur. How does that go from that to you going to Pakistan? <laughs> well, I've sort of gone through so many emotions here, I guess. I'm laughing now, but I can remember getting hold of Mickey. I had his email address and I said, look, I, I don't know how this works over there, but I know that you're over there and I'd be interested to help the team out. And he, he came back to me and he said, look, let me see what I can do. I'll, I'll get back to you. And I, I'd sort of mentioned it to the, one of the, my colleague at work. I said, look, I said, one thing I'd love to do, I've always wanted to coach an international women's team. I said, I don't know whether you were watching women's cricket. He wasn't a great fan of women's cricket. He said, no, I wasn't. I said, I'd like to work with Pakistan. He just looked at me blankly. Oh, yeah, here we go. And then a man rang, and we were getting prepared to be married. So we've got sort of over this. This is March, and we're now in July. So I'm starting to work things out. I'm getting better, and I'm finding myself, and we were always going to get married in July, but this whole hiccup thing in March, and, and Mel had gained confidence back in me, and we were heading in the right direction. And anyway, so because I'd mentioned it to the guy at work, I thought, He's quite a character. He'd be playing cricket. Um, Mr. Mark, I said, yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, Pakistan cricket. I thought, oh, yeah. I said, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, coach, you coach uh, against New Zealand in Dubai. I said, yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. That'll be great. Flick us an email. And I was really, really off. Someone's playing a trick on me. This is a complete waste of my time. Put the phone in. And I distinctly remember going back to Mel. And Mel said, who was that? I said, no, I think. Keith, my colleague at work, or someone is playing a trick on me. I said, just cricket and Pakistan. And she said, oh, okay. I said, I had mentioned it to Keith that I was quite keen to. Within about half an hour, I just checked my emails, Pakistan Cricket Board email. I said to Mel, hey, Mel, you remember that guy on the telephone? She said, yeah. I said, well, it's true. He was from Pakistan, and it looks like I might be going to coach Pakistan against New Zealand and Dubai. And she just looked at me and went, oh, Mark. Really? I said, well, I fulfill a dream if I can do it. So that's how it went. It sort of just went like that. And then, as I said, the next time I was, I remember driving up, Mel was driving me up and I'd packed my bag and I went through so much. I didn't sleep and I was so nervous about it. And I got to the checkout and Mel had to come with me. And then I had to say goodbye to them. And I didn't know what I was going to. Mickey reassured me everything's okay, but I didn't really know Mickey that well. And I'd spoken to the woman at Pakistan Cricket that I was going to deal with and meeting me at the airport. I'd landed in Dubai and I got a message from the head of women's cricket to say, the lady that you were meeting is now no longer working for us. I just went, oh. So I just said, well, is someone going to be there? Yes, yes, no problem. And I remember arriving at 2.30 in the morning from Dubai, wildly hot, just unbearable heat, 30, 35 degrees, 2.30 in the morning. A man coming towards me with a photocopy of me, Mr. Coles, Mr. Collis. I said, yeah, well, it's Coles, but that'll, we'll call it close. And then being whisked through security and in this Toyota high-ace wagon with guards in the back near me and sirens in the front and sirens in the back screaming through Lahore and then arriving at this massive NCA complex and the driver toots the horn and and I get out from the bags, this little white Kiwi fellow, and, you know, great greetings, and then whisk up the stairs. And I probably overpacked, you know, because I thought this I might not ever get back home. So I packed all my belongings and I'd written out what I wanted in my will just in case, you know. So I'd done all of that, well prepared as a coach. And I get into this room and there's a bed 
And it was a nice room. It's not the worst room. A TV, which wasn't of much use to me because there was only two channels, you know, that were English. The rest was all in Urdu. Or, uh, and a bathroom. And as I said in the, in the article, I just remember lying there thinking, oh, I just want to go home. Where's Mel? Where's Madison? Where's my house? What do I do next? And then the next morning came and I had breakfast and these people were looking at me and a few people came over and said, oh, look, you're going to go over and meet the chairman and then in, in a day's time you're going to meet the girls. And that's how it all pieced together. It was, it was like living in a dream that I didn't really know how it was going to end. Was there a hole in the fact that you never got to play cricket to the level that you thought you could have? And was this trying to fill that? I think so. Absolutely. 100%. I think I always wanted to be as good as dad, if not better. And I, I just didn't get there. And so there was always, you're right, an empty space that I needed to fulfill. And this was one way of doing it. And you paid for your fare to go over, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, like we just got married, so that was a bit of an expense. And so we, you know, we stumped up with the money. And I remember being in an Emirates flight for 17 hours to Dubai, just squeezed in between these people. And because I get a bad back anyway, you know, and I was like, that never ended. You know, it was just horrendous. But we got there. And yeah, yeah, so I did. I, and they paid for my accommodation. And then we were meeting the girls within 48 hours. So that was pretty frightening. You know women's cricket, and obviously know cricket by this point. Pakistan, you're probably not an expert in. Pakistan women, I assume you are definitely not an expert in. So take me through that. Before I knew it, I'd met the girls were all together and they were ready for the camp. We had 29 girls and we were all met and whisked off to this Lahore Country Club, which is about 45 minutes out of Lahore. I became very good friends with the man who owned it. Lovely guy. We were in this bulletproof bus. And some of the girls were flying in from other areas. And then uh, we had a team meeting at about five o'clock. And it was brutally hot again. And we were in this room. And although the air conditioning was working, I was obviously clearly very nervous. And I remember the new lady that, that I hadn't dealt with before. <laughs> she turned to me and she spoke quite good English. And she said, Mark, if you want to introduce yourself to the girls and tell us a little bit about yourself, they'd love to hear from you. The floor is yours. And I thought, well, what am I going to say? That I'm an old drunk or, well, my cricket went like this and it didn't go so well. And I knew that drinking wasn't in the culture. So that's not going to go down too well. Fumbled my way through it a little bit from New Zealand and this and that. And I said, look, I've got no idea what's gone on before. And I don't really have an interest in what's gone on in the past. But what I do know is that you're a really talented bunch of young ladies. And I said, whatever happens in the series coming up, that happened to be against New Zealand, I said, win, lose, or draw. We're going to have some fun. We're going to work really hard, and we're just going to be the best that we can be. And you know what? I said, if you make a mistake, we're winning. We're learning. So we're going to make lots of mistakes, but we're going to have the best 14 days, and some of you aren't going to make the team, and some of you are going to be lucky enough to make the team. But whatever happens at the end of it, I hope that you've learned something, that you've enjoyed it, and that you want to keep playing, whether you make the team or you don't. And that was probably about it. But I, I had organised to meet this person, son Amir, and she was the one that I needed to convince because she was Queen Bee. Mm. And she'd mm. already stated that she wasn't going to play for Pakistan, but she ended up coming to camp. So that was a really fascinating meeting for me and the start of a really close friendship. I call her my younger sister now. 
So that that was a fascinating meeting, and that began sort of the destiny and the journey for her to be the number one bowler in the world, and certainly our friendship and our honest relationship within the team. And she's very unlike the rest of the players. A lot of them would have been younger from non-English speaking background. She's obviously uh, you know a brilliant woman in almost everything she does, not just cricket. Mm. Having someone like that there, once you do build a relationship, must have been a huge help for you. Massive help because she did speak such good English. And I just said to her, what do you want to achieve? You're going to retire. You're closer to retirement than you are to starting your career. And we, you know, I I remember meeting her and I, again, I was very nervous to meet this woman because I'd heard some good things, but I'd also heard some really bad things. And I said, what's going to motivate you to keep going? Because she was 50-50. And we sort of talked about it. We finally got round to the fact that she was at number seven or something in the world and she wanted to be number one would be her driving factor. So I said, okay, if you make a commitment to me to be part of this group, I'll make a commitment to you to try and do the best I can to get you to where your goal is. And together, with the help of Bismar and a couple of other senior players, we'll get this team to be the best that they can be. Now, what that looks like, I don't know yet. But if you're with me and we can convince the others to come for the ride, then let's see what happens here. And so she said to me, okay, let's give this a go. I'm going to do it. And from that point on, the next day when we started training, phenomenal, phenomenal. And she eventually became number one in the world in October 18. That's not a secret. Her performances went up, team performances were better. It's just, it was a match made in heaven. You and I are both from the West, and when you first go over to parts of Asia, you have it in your mind because you're a cricket fan and you understand a little bit about the culture, but you don't understand the the difference of, you know, I come from a fairly poor part of the northern suburbs of Melbourne, but most kids still could get tennis balls if they had to. Mm. They could borrow someone's cricket bat, whereas that's not the case, especially if you're a Pakistani woman because cricket equipment just isn't available to you. How do you overcome almost teaching them from the ground up because they just haven't had the access to the equipment before. That was a frightening thing. Uh, uh, and I, I learned a little bit later on that they had to pay for their own cricket balls. I was in this meeting and I couldn't quite figure out that, hang on, so is that your phone that you've got there? He said, no, no, this is PCB. I have to hand it back. And I said, so it's a tool of the trade that you've got. I said, is a cricket ball not the same thing? But what I couldn't work out was at the end of one tour, these girls kept on knocking on my room. And whilst I used to enjoy the fact that they would knock and say hi and, you know, they wouldn't come into the room, but they'd say hi and blah, blah, I was wondering. So then it kept going on. So every half an hour or less, I was up off my bed and answered, yeah, hello, have you got some cricket balls? I said, yes. But after about the 10th one, I called Sana. I said, Sana, what is happening here? I said, I mean, she said, well, they, want, they don't have cricket balls because they have to pay for their own. I said, no, no. So one of the girls, I found out, used to get a whole lot of shopping bags, plastic shopping bags, and put them on the, on the frying pan and twirl it around really, really quickly, and they would caramelise. And so then they would become really hard, and she used that as a cricket ball. So I said to the guy, I said, look, I, I don't know what's happening here, but I said, I'll tell you what is going to happen in the future. At the end of a tour, I'm giving all the cricket balls away. And I was really lucky at the end of the Dubai tour against New Zealand, the girls got together and Hayley Tiffin came to me. I'd suggest, she said to me, you know, how are you getting on? We were staying in the same hotel. I said, well, it's different. Are you going to take back excess luggage? And she sort of said, I said, well, if you've got any cricket balls, can you leave them behind? Because these girls are 
believe. Anyway, she was really kind enough to say, have our bag of cricket balls, our old ones, and make the most of them. So we got a, another bag of cricket balls from New Zealand Cricket. Thank you, New Zealand Cricket. It was very generous of you. And that we could hand out to the girls as well. And they were just so appreciative of these cricket balls. The New Zealand was their favourite team. Not We beat them once, but they were just the favourite team because we got a whole lot of free cricket balls. And the bats they used, of course, were boys' bats. So a lot of the test players, which is very nice of the test players as well, Imam or Huck would give them cricket bats. Well, Imam or Huck's 65, 70 kilos. Our girls are 45 kilos. It's like lifting a bit of four by two. So that was awkward as well. But we got there in the end. I mean, those are all the things that we take for granted, but you also had mm. to deal with other issues. So we've talked about your problems and everything coming mm. up, but compared to some of the players that you had, you had a player who was beaten by her family for playing cricket, didn't you? Yeah, and that was nearer the end of my tenure where we were playing in the West Indies series, which we managed to win 2-1, and we'd included this young lady in the team. And the, the SNC guy, who Jamal Hussain, who played county cricket in England, a wonderful, wonderful guy, but was Pakistani and spoke Hudu. He, he came to me when we got the team together and he said, look, Mark, he said, we've got a problem. And I said, Jamal, what number on the list is this? Because we've got a few at the moment. And he said, oh, this is number one. I said, okay. He said, look, you know, she's just told me about her cricketing journey and that um, when she was making her way in cricket, she was travelling on a bus for two hours to a ground where she could practice. But someone from her village had recognised her and found out that she wasn't going to badminton, she was going to cricket. And cricket wasn't seen as a girl's sport. So they used to bully her on the bus, but he told her father and brother and her parents. So when she got home, they would beat her up for the fact that she told a lie. But she didn't stop going. She kept going. And not only that, did she keep going. She couldn't eat lunch with the boys, obviously. So she had to eat lunch out the back of this building where the, the tap water was pretty bad, she ended up with typhoid three times. One time she ended up in hospital and thought she was actually going to pass away and she remembered praying to Allah and almost within herself saying, this is it, I, I'm not well. Uh, and she survived, which was fantastic. And then the, the strange thing was when we included her, one of the girls that was rooming with her said to me, Mark, she hasn't changed. She wears her one-day uniform to bed she's just wearing it the whole time so we sort of had to have a conversation to say you only get two sets of gear so you you just have to going to make sure that you keep washing this because oh it's not going to be pleasant for the opposition but she was just so blown away and, and she told her story to the team I said to her would you be willing to tell your story we were two nil down going into the last T20 and she told the team and we happened to win uh, against the West Indies, and I'm sure it was that story. There was not a dry eye in the house. Once one girl went, they all went. And it was just the most moving story. And she told an Urdu, and uh, I mean, I was gone pretty early on, but the rest of the girls, but that brought us together. And it's that story about being vulnerable. The other girls appreciated how much hard work she had to put in on top of the hard work that they were putting in. It was a significant move forward for our team to be vulnerable and open about the struggles that some of these girls face. Did it help your personal struggles? Yeah, it did, because I knew every day that these girls were getting abused by our media. A lot of people in Pakistan didn't want, we had one in our team that didn't want females to be playing cricket, it wasn't the right thing. 
And I knew that I had to be happy every day because every one of these girls had a different story. You know, we had one girl that lived right on the border of Afghanistan. And so she couldn't practice sometimes because of the bombs that were going off. She'd text me and when I was back in New Zealand to say, I can't make practice today, Mark. There's been a bomb attack. And I said to my wife, I said, is she telling me that she can't make practice because there's been a bomb attack and apologising? And Mel said to me, I, I, and I just said to her, oh, that's okay, that's fine, no problem. She said, Ma, she's just told you. She's not, she can't get to practice. A significant terrorist attack going on. I just thought, wow. So I quickly texted back saying, look, don't panic. Don't go to cricket. Just stay where you are and stay safe. So there's all these sorts of things that you have to deal with. You're not coaching cricket. You are helping individuals just through things that we wouldn't even think about. It wouldn't even strike us as being real. And I knew that I had to be the happy person. Even if we lost, I had to be happy. Because once you went down as the coach, they followed you pretty quick. They followed you real quick. They could pick up on you very, very quickly, your emotions. They did start to pick up, though, when you were there. Did start to play a bit better, didn't they? Yeah, because we turned our practices into things where we could make mistakes. And I'm not sure what went on in the past. I'm not criticising anything that went on in the past. But I think what happened in the past may have been that they had test players take them, and male test players. And I don't, I don't think the male test players understood that, why can't you play like me? I used to be able to hit it over the top, inside out, over cover. Why can't you do that? Well, because they can't. They're 45 kilos. Their weight, um, they won't be able to. So we, we encourage them to make mistakes and be happy to make mistakes because that's how you're going to learn. And we brought a fun element into it. You know, when I, I made it in the article. When we lost, when we were down and out against New Zealand, I couldn't have a drink in, in Dubai because if I did, I took the chance of being arrested. And that didn't really appeal to me in Dubai. So I thought, well, the next best thing that I like is ice cream. And I knew that we'd been to a restaurant where they served ice cream. So I thought, well, we were 2-0 down against New Zealand. Divine had smashed us. She was annoying me. Not that she annoyed me as a person, but she was just, here comes Sophie again, and our girls used to, you know, and she belted it. So I thought, right, that's it. Half past six at night, I'm calling a meeting, and in my own mind, I decided that I'm going to go and get an ice cream. So I'm going to take these girls, and I'm going to go and shout them for an ice cream. I think they thought, I said, right, we're going to meet down. I didn't get any secrets. We're going to meet down in the foyer of the hotel at 7 o'clock sharp, please. And I made the message sound like I was a little bit annoyed at our performance. And so they were all there early. And I put, please don't be late, all of the support staff and the team, where are we going? Follow me. We're off. And it was like a typical New Zealander, (laughs) typical farmer leading his sheep to get cows to get milked, you know, and they're all, and, and I could I could hear them, uh, not that I could understand it, but I could, un- they're thinking, where are we going? We're going through the mall, and we had a big mall that was attached to the hotel in Dubai, and, and then we got to this restaurant, and I said, right, chocolate, strawberry, or vanilla? And they looked at me, I said, well, we might as well. We're, I enjoy ice cream, and you guys look sad, and I'm sad, so we might as well start to be happy together. And there's nothing better that makes me happy than ice cream. I said, I'm having strawberry. So hands up if you want strawberry. And oh, the strawberry wasn't popular. <laughs> Vanilla was less popular, but chocolate was really popular. So I, had, I said to the guy, look, there's 20 people here, you know, with support staff. I said, you've got to give us a deal. And he was really good. He gave us a deal and he did some tricks with them. And all of a sudden it lightened up the mood. 
And then for whatever reason, we won the next day against New Zealand for the very first time ever. So it was all those sorts of things that, but it just made me happy to see them happy. At that particular stage, because I was doing it on a volunteer basis, I think they probably came to the realisation pretty quickly that this guy is absolutely crazy. But he's a fun crazy, so we'll just stick with it, see where this goes. Let's say your back doesn't give up and you go on and let's say you play 20, 25 times in New Zealand. You go back, you probably coach men's cricket because you've got more of a reputation. But perhaps you never get into the sort of, you, you might still have the emotional problems, but you might not get into the depths of that. In some ways, everything you've gone through and the ability to help those women is more than what a lot of international cricketers ever get the chance to do. They're not trained to think that way. Your friends and my friends are international cricketers, but they're trained to think about performance and looking after themselves and being elite. Because of everything that you went through, you end up volunteering to coach a team on the other side of the world, and that probably doesn't happen otherwise if you're not you. I'd never thought of it like that. But you're probably right, you know. I mean, maybe if that was my case, I would have been bowling coach for some fabulous international team and earning twice probably what I was earning and and would I have been happy? Maybe I, I wouldn't have been. Maybe I would have still been drinking and staying up late and partying because I had some sort of profile. That made me happy. That changed me as a person into the person that I am now, which is a hundred times better than what I was. And all those relationships that I destroyed way back, you know, because you were a drunk or a a part young mid-twenties drunk and you destroy things so quickly. I'm just so thankful that these 30 young ladies that I dealt with over a period of time, because it wasn't a big base of players, all gave me such happiness that I can then put into being a better husband and being a better dad and and hopefully in my time to come being a better grandfather. And I'm just so thankful to them for how they made me feel. And it'll always be close to me. And I've I've said to Sana that when she gets married that I will make the effort to get over there. I was invited to a couple of weddings, but it always worked out that I was back at home, you know, and I just couldn't get back in time to get to the weddings. But you know, I hear from them over Eid and Ramadan and they'll always be close to me. Always the daughters, as I said to my daughters, we've got 30 other daughters really. And I was lucky enough that Mel and Maddie met them in Malaysia and they just took to Maddie straight away. Such friendly, beautiful people. I'm assuming outside of your family life, this is that most meaningful thing that you've ever been involved with. Yeah, I went and volunteered my time, one other time in Sri Lanka, to the Dilma Foundation in 2016 to try and find myself as well. Alex Reese runs that, Kiwi guy. And fantastic. That's for all the young kids that have lost their, their parents in the um, tsunami. And it's about teaching young kids with underprivileged backgrounds about cricket and how that can change your life. That was really fulfilling for me as well. And we took the girls back there, actually. I took them back there when we played Sri Lanka. And they were just fantastic for these kids and the kids took to them straight away. And it was great to see Sanjeeva, who runs the the foundation, along with Alex, again after such a long time. It was just such a good combination for the girls as well. And so that was also another really cool time of my life. But I think this time that I was on the road in an international setup was something that I always wanted to fulfil. But the fact that these girls gave me such joy every day And I knew that they were trying their best. 
they tried their best every single day. I couldn't not get emotional or cross with them because they'd missed out or they'd been bowled out for a low total because they're learning. They were learning the game and we had a little bit of success, you know, which was great. But the most success I, I had with them was off the field and seeing them do pretty well on the field. And I hope that can continue in the future, you know, and that they all become great people, which they are, and, and they become great mums and whatever happens in their life happens. And they just maybe reflect one day on the times that they had and the series that they had and, and that there was this funny white fellow Kiwi guy, Mark, who took us for ice cream. I remember that. He took me for an ice cream and I had the chocolate ice cream and he had strawberry and we had a great time together and that would make me happier, you know, that they remembered that. One last question. What does your father make of all this, your journey? Very proud. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me a bit emotional. Mm. Thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Just a huge thank you to Mark Coles for coming on and being this honest. Also a big thanks to Jahan Kassaneda, who wrote the original article on stuff.co.uk, which you can find in the show notes, and put me in touch with Mark when I reached out to him. And thank you for listening. As always, please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Tell people about Twitter. All your sharing and reviewing really does help this podcast. The podcast itself is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all so much. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston pleases you in ways that you don't even understand. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Cricket. Thank you for listening to this episode. Red Inca listener, don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.